0: The Gettysburg Address lasted less than three minutes. It was a mere 273 words. The day was November the 19th, 1863. The occasion was the dedication of a Civil War cemetery. Lincoln's invitation to the event explained his assignment. It read, After the oration, set apart these grounds to their sacred use by a few appropriate remarks. Abraham Lincoln wasn't even the keynote speaker that day. That was Edward Everett, a former Secretary of State, a past Harvard president. In fact, the dedication had been delayed for three weeks to give Everett more time to prepare. His speech lasted over two hours. After Everett sat down and a hymn was played, Lincoln took the platform. He had little aspiration for his words that day. He figured Everett's carefully crafted remarks would be the highlight of the day. Lincoln even prefaced his short speech by saying, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, how wrong he was. In his few remarks, Abraham Lincoln redefined the Civil War Not just as a struggle to preserve the Union, which he famously called a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, but he called the war a new birth of freedom to bring all our citizens a true equality. Lincoln's short speech was printed and reprinted and literally was noted by the entire world. It became one of the most important In strategic declarations in United States history, later a newspaper would write, the battle itself was less important than the speech. And the more we learn about the circumstances surrounding Lincoln's speech that day, the more amazing it was. On the train trip from Washington to Gettysburg the day before, he told a companion that he felt weak. That morning, he spoke of dizziness. An eyewitness of his speech said Lincoln's face had a ghastly color and that he was sad, mournful, almost haggard in appearance. After the day was done and Lincoln had boarded the train for the trip back to D.C., it was noted that the president had a fever and a severe headache. A prolonged illness followed. It was diagnosed as a mild case of smallpox. Imagine Abraham Lincoln delivered one of the most impactful speeches in history while weak and dizzy and feverish, suffering from the onset of a dreaded disease. As we look back on it now, the influence of the president's speech that day, its enduring legacy, can't be attributed to one man's domineering presence. Or his eloquent style, or his command of the language, or his appeasement of the crowd. No, something else happened that day. A simple man, in physical weakness and in emotional distress, dared to declare a righteous vision. He spoke timeless truths, and those words fell like thunder. They caused a quake that rippled all around the world. It wasn't the speaker himself or his skill in speaking. It wasn't the force of his style and his eloquence. No, it was the truths he spoke. And it was the sincerity in which he spoke them. And it was as if the Spirit of God gave his words a life of their own and hammered home their meaning with a supernatural power and proficiency. See, I bring all this up because it was very similar to what Paul experienced when he preached to the Corinthians For like Lincoln, Paul also spoke in the shadow of an Edward Everett. The Greeks were the famous orators of Paul's era. The Greek period leading up to Paul's day was known as the Golden Age of Eloquence. In the 5th century BC, Pericles had redefined the art of public speech as a means of motivation. In his famous funeral address, he stirred up his countrymen to war with Sparta. Demosthenes was another elite Greek orator. He was a stutterer who overcame his speech impediment by putting pebbles in his mouth and then speaking through the pebbles. He understood the significance of a speech. Recently, I visited a webpage that featured the top ten orators of all time. The last eight were men from the modern era, Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, Ronald Reagan, to name a few. But prior to this modern era of speakers, the list was empty up until the time of the Greeks and the Romans. You see, during the Middle Ages, the time in between, when kings and nobles ruled, there was no need for oratory. No one had to make a case or present a choice. Power was wielded by the sword. It's only in the midst of democratic ideals, where the goal is to sway minds and hearts that men excel in the powers of speech. In today's era of the ballot box, aspiring politicians have to be able to communicate and to persuade, and it was so in Greek and Roman times. John Quincy Adams observed, in the flourishing periods of Athens and Rome, eloquence was power. And this is why Paul's example was so strange. For rather than eloquence, he relied on content. Rather than lean on how he spoke, he trusted in what was said. Paul had truth from God, and he delivered it in a way where it spoke for itself. It was the Spirit of God, not the eloquence of Paul, that made his preaching effective. You know, today, perhaps more so than ever... Eloquence is power. In so many arenas of modern life, the quickest path to success is effective, persuasive communication. A young Churchill remarked, Of all the talents bestowed upon men, none is so precious as the gift of oratory. He knew the might of a well-spoken speech. But once again, in a twist of irony, God chose to forego the world's values. He deliberately sidestepped the methods of man. Rather than rely on eloquence, God took another tact. He presented the gospel in a way and through men that mocked the polish and the skill of oratory. Again, God proves his wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. God's wisdom makes man's wisdom foolish. Paul begins in chapter 2. And I, brethren when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Now here's been Paul's theme for the last half of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God makes choices and works in ways that deliberately insult man's pride and forces us to humble ourselves before him. This was seen in the message of the cross and in the makeup of the church. Remember, the Greeks were into wisdom. The Jews were into power. But God chose to save the world by an event that seemed to be the antithesis of both values. To the Greeks, the cross seemed like a gigantic mistake, an act of foolishness. To the Jews, it was the ultimate weakness. The cross was not what anyone would have expected. It was the epitome of weakness, and it had all the markings of foolishness. And yet it was through the cross of Christ That God unleashed his wisdom and his power. And the church of Christ taught the same lesson. Rather than fill its ranks with the beautiful and the buff and the brilliant, God added to his church the stained and the slight and the slow. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. Paul said to the Corinthians, Look around at the members of your church. Check each other's resume. There aren't many honor students among you. There are not many decorated athletes. There are not many folks with economic clout or political muscle. Paul says that God chooses the base. Just simple folk. He handpicked the despised, people with a past. Those others had rejected. A church full of nobodies rather than a badge of honor. Church membership in Corinth was a testimony of God's grace. And that is exactly as God wanted. The cross and the church were an affront to man's pride and sophistication. Embracing the cross and joining the church both breed humility. To show his disdain for the values of this world and to breed in us a better way of humility and love and trust and grace, God used three teaching tools. First, the message of the cross. Second, The makeup of the church. And now third in chapter 2, the methods of the courier. Paul points to himself. Hey, when God uses the foolish things to confound the wise, he's not only thinking about the message and the makeup, but he's also thinking about the messenger. Even Paul was an illustration of God's wisdom. See, rather than use a style of preaching the world saw as eloquent, or a speaker who could spin a phrase, who could dominate a stage, who could work a crowd, God chose Paul, a man who had given up on excellence of speech and worldly wisdom, and had simply come, he says, declaring the testimony of God. Here in chapter 2, the courier, Paul the messenger describes the methods of his own ministry. He relied on simplicity of speech and the power of the Holy Spirit. Once there was a church building which had a painting of the crucifixion directly behind the the pulpit. The pastor of this church was a large man, and so he blocked the people's view of the painting. One Sunday, he was absent. The church had a guest speaker. One of the kids asked his mom, "'Where's the guy who stands where we can't see Jesus?' Paul made it his goal to avoid that ever being said of him. Rather than impress folks with flash and with skill and with well-constructed arguments and philosophies, Paul just pointed people to Jesus. The worst mistake a pastor can make is to use the pulpit to posture and show off. Don't ever block anyone's view of Jesus. Paul writes in verse 2, For I determined... Not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In his book, Roads, Driving America's Great Highways, author Larry McMurtry, he writes of the miles and miles of roads he drove while exploring America. Toward the end of his book, McMurtry contrasts his extensive travels with the sedentary life of his father, See, the furthest his dad ever traveled from his East Texas farm was a few adjacent dirt roads. McMurtry concludes, I have looked at many places quickly. My father looked at one place deeply. And this was Paul's strategy when he went to Corinth. For rather than tackling many topics, rather than showing off his broad knowledge... Paul narrowed down his emphasis to Christ and Him crucified. It's been said, timing is everything. And here is no exception. The timing of Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth helps us with the interpretation of his words. You remember in Acts chapter 18, on Paul's first visit to Corinth, he had come straight from Athens. His ministry in Corinth was on the heels of his experience on Mars Hill where he debated the resident Athenian scholars. As I mentioned earlier, Athens was the intellectual and philosophical capital of the ancient world. The favorite pastime in Athens was daily debates on the rock platform next to the Acropolis. Mars Hill was the octagon of philosophy. It staged Greek wise guys engaging in philosophical cage fights. They would come with a carefully crafted idea or argument, and it would be tested by other men as arrogant as themselves. And Paul was not one to shy away from such a fight. He had gone there to their their platform to use it in order to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the sermon he preached was spectacular. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17. In hopes of relating to his audience, Paul quoted two Greek philosophers, contemporaries, Aratus and Cleanthes. He then cleverly referenced a tomb that he had spotted earlier in the city. The idle happy Athenians had dedicated one to the unknown God just in case they'd miss somebody. But Paul used the concept to speak of the true God. He said, I'll tell you about this God that you don't know. He made all things. He needs no temple. He created the nations and their boundaries. He's put a longing in the human heart for himself. He's even patient with sinners. And he has raised his son Jesus from the dead. And with his mention of the resurrection, Paul's time on Mars Hill came to an abrupt end. For Athenian logic and humanism had no room for the supernatural. Oh, there were a few folks who believed Paul and responded positively to the gospel. But the Athenians as a whole chalked up Paul's assertions as superstition and closed the door on the debate. Paul was depressed. He was disappointed. As he traveled now from Athens to Corinth, He spent that time trying to analyze what went wrong. Why wasn't there a larger response? Paul had tried so hard to be relevant. He had quoted their philosophers. He had referenced cultural similarities. And Paul seemed to be connecting. They were tracking with him until he mentioned the one thing that wasn't relevant to anything within Greek culture. The resurrection. This was so foreign to their thinking. This was a miracle. It wasn't that Paul was wrong in trying to relate to his listeners. It's just that there are some indispensable aspects of Christianity that aren't relevant to any audience. To a materialistic, humanistic people, any assumption of the supernatural is going to be mocked and viewed with suspicion. The resurrection insulted Greek logic, just as it insults humanistic, the humanistic mindset today. And to people who took pride in their wisdom and in their power, oh, the cross was also an affront. The two pillars of Christianity, the death and resurrection of Jesus, both flow against the human stream. Both truths rub against the grain of every culture, ancient or modern. When Paul came to Corinth, he concluded that he would try a different approach. Rather than tiptoe around the crux of the matter, which was the cross, rather than just ease into his message, he would cut straight to the chase. Paul said he was determined not to know anything among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was adamant. He refused to let anything enter the conversation that would crowd out or overshadow or distract from the saving message of Jesus and his crucifixion. In Athens, Paul studied the Greeks, and he appealed to their felt needs, issues that were on their minds. He showed how that God fit with what they wanted in a deity, and yet a God who fits me and my needs may not be the God I need. A God who is only an add-on to what I already believe doesn't necessarily cause me to repent and to convert. Conversion occurs when I'm challenged by a God who isn't about fitting in with me and my lifestyle. Instead, God can do what I can't. God has what I lack. He expects me to fit in with Him, not vice versa. A person can have all his intellectual questions answered, all his emotional needs met. But unless he faces the cross of Christ, he remains unconverted Whereas a doubter, still skeptical, still reeling from his own emptiness, gets shaken by the cross. The cross exposes his sin. The cross demands his allegiance. He yields to Christ and is saved by the power of God. This is why in Corinth, Paul emphasized not cultural relevance, but the cross. He sought conversions, not just conversations. He wanted finders, not just seekers. Realized Paul's preaching was content driven, not personality driven. It was substance over style. Rather than flash and splash across the stage, rather than wow the crowd and entertain and pump up the audience, rather than be melodramatic and sensationalistic, Paul chose simplicity. Oh, sure, he was interesting to listen to. And he gave a thoughtful Engaging presentation. Just study his sermon before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 22. Yet Paul wanted the cross to be the crux of his preaching. When men left from listening to him, Paul wanted the message of the cross, not his funny jokes, not his gripping stories, but Jesus and the cross ringing in their ears. Paul preached Christ crucified, not himself amplified. Helena Majewska was a famous actress who lived around the turn of the century. Once at a party, she was asked to perform. And she presented an amazing oratory in her native tongue of Polish. The crowd was riveted with her every word. Helena's presentation was powerful and emotional packed and soul stirring. It was later that the talented actress revealed that all she had done was recite the Polish alphabet. There are preachers today who impress their congregation, not with their Polish, but with their Polish. Yet they don't say anything. They can say nothing better than you've ever heard nothing said before. Once there was a chaplain for the insane asylum. He was leaving the auditorium after having delivered a particularly confusing and convoluted and disjointed sermon. None of the folks who had listened could make any sense out of what he said. One of the mental patients sort of pointed to the guys he walked by and he said, There, but for the grace of God go I. (laughs) Paul chose to keep his preaching simple and to the point. His ministry wasn't about attracting followers to himself. It was about winning followers to Jesus. And this isn't the case with all preachers, sadly, either now or then. Too many pastors today try to disarm you with their charm. Motivational speakers are good at this. They do it all the time. And a pastor who knows what he's doing, he can move the crowd's emotions. And he can tell folks what they want to hear. And he can appease them with a palatable message without ever really proclaiming the truth of God. Too many preachers today are like salesmen. They got a pitch. They know how to bait the hook and close the deal. And convince you it's in your best interest to buy. Whereas Paul was like an ambassador. His job was to put out all the cards on the table. Articulate the message as faithfully and as clearly as possible. He did this in Corinth and hundreds if not thousands were saved. Paul writes to the Corinthians in verse 3. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Oh, so much for Paul feeling good and bubbling over with self-confidence. No, when he arrived in Corinth, he was apparently sick and afraid and more than a little bit nervous. Perhaps he was still reeling from the beatings and imprisonment he had experienced in Philippi or the riots in Thessalonica or the opposition against him in Berea. In recent months, ministry had been hard on Paul. And by the time he reached Corinth, he was at the end of his rope You could say he was burned out and he had backed off. The mere thought of speaking for God made him tremble. You know, public speaking makes a lot of people tremble. According to comedian Jerry Seinfeld, our two greatest fears are, number one, public speaking, and number two, death. Thus, Jerry cracks the next time you're at a funeral realize that most of the people in attendance would rather be in the box than on the platform delivering the eulogy. Glossophobia, or the fear of public speaking, is the most common of all phobias. The name comes from two Greek words, glossa, or tongue, and phobia, or fear. Here, when Paul speaks of fear in verse 3, it's the word phobia. Glossophobia, or the fear of public speaking, ranges in intensity among people, from slight nervousness in some to paralyzing panic in others. But almost everybody has a touch. For some people, this phobia is so great, they avoid public speaking at all costs. They'll choose a course of study in college or a career that doesn't require talking to crowds. Some folks show up late at meetings or even forfeit promotions because it might require upfront speaking. I don't know what caused Paul's fear and weakness and trembling, but whatever it was, it was real to him. You know, I've been told that running a 5K or speaking to a crowd for 45 minutes produces about the same amount of stress and strain on your body. It takes a lot out of you. Like Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg, Paul was fearful and weak to the point of trembling. And yet the truth he spoke and the power behind him trumped his weakness. And I've had moments too when I was weak or tired, or exhausted, or leery of what someone might think. Each time you stand and speak in Jesus' name, you put yourself out there. And it can be intimidating to lay yourself bare in front of people, then to do it week after week and month after month. It wears on you. I'll never forget the first time I spoke at the Calvary Chapel National Pastors Conference. Oh, this was a big deal. And since the conference was at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and I knew I'd be standing in Pastor Chuck's pulpit speaking to my peers, oh my, was I nervous. The whole morning prior to my session, I couldn't concentrate. Every ounce of strength left me. I didn't think I had it in me to walk to the platform when I was introduced. In fact, I was so fearful, I was so trembling, God had to rebuke me. I'll never forget, he said, Sandy, you need to get a grip. It's time to buck up. I've called you to this. I remember climbing into that pulpit more nervous than a burglar at a police station. I grabbed hold of the podium just to hold myself up, to keep myself from falling. But as soon as I opened my Bible and started my message, the Spirit of God took over. The fear and the weakness and the trembling left instantly. And when I was done, I knew even if no one else did, that the results that day had nothing to do with me, but with the power of God working in me. And this was what Paul's fear and weakness and trembling taught him. Verse 4 tells us, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. When Paul came to Corinth, he could not have waxed eloquent. He didn't have it in him. Even if he'd tried, he would have failed. In fact, shortly after Paul's arrival, God came to him in a night vision. Acts 18 verse 9 records God's message to him. Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. What a wonderful assurance that was. But it shows that Paul must have been pretty discouraged in the first place to need such a supernatural pickup. When he did speak and people were saved, it was obvious that it wasn't due to his cleverness and his cuteness. It wasn't the force of his presence or the weightiness of his words or the eloquence of his exposition or the slickness of his methods. It wasn't the Paul show, not at all, not in Corinth. Miracles flowed from this frail courier due to a demonstration of the spirit and of power. In 1958, John Stott, he led a university outreach in Sydney, Australia. A big rally was planned for the final night. Yet on the day before, Stott received news that his father had passed away. In addition to his obvious grief, he had developed a sore throat. His voice was raspy, really scratchy. Well, on the way to the final meeting where he was scheduled to speak, Stott had a group of friends gather around him and lay hands on him. He asked them to pray Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Listen to John Stott recount his preaching that night. I had to get within a half inch of the microphone. And I croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't move. I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in monotone. But when I gave the invitation, there was immediate response, larger than any other meeting during the mission. Stott said that over the years, he returned to Australia ten more times. And on every trip, someone would approach him and tell him how they were converted that very night. As Paul had written, his preaching was not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You know, it's an amazing experience when the Holy Spirit takes over a sermon, when He commandeers your preaching. It's happened to me. I'm teaching away when suddenly the Spirit of God grabs hold of my message and simple words suddenly become flying daggers. What were just syllables on their own become spiritual arrows now streaking for their targets. The congregation is under heavenly fire. God's Spirit works behind the scenes, but in those moments only slightly. For those with a smidgen of discernment, they know that God is present, that you can feel a heavenly heaviness. There's a gaping wound in the room, and something said stops the bleeding. Hey, through Bible preaching, the Holy Spirit applies a healing poultice to a festering sore. This is the kind of miracle work that Paul saw in Corinth and that God lets me see more often than I deserve. In verse 5, Paul tells the Corinthians why a little trepidation in the pastor is needed preparation for his ministry. He writes to them that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. See, Paul knew this before, but he experienced it up close and personal during his time in the city of Corinth. A paradox was playing out before their very eyes. People were being converted. A church was growing. All the while, the pastor was trembling in frailness and in fear. How does that work? Obviously, the source of it all was the power of God, not the wisdom of Paul. As God promised centuries before to his servant Zerubbabel, the work would be done not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Hey, understand an important principle. The means by which a person is drawn to Christ will be the means by which that person is held to Christ. If a new convert is impressed by a man's wisdom, or his skill, or the style of the speaker, his coolness, or his hipness, Or his swag. Hey, then they're just inclined to grow unimpressed at some point. For what happens when someone else comes along who's smarter or who's cooler or who strings together sharper sound bites or has more cogent arguments? If your faith is in a man, you'll be disappointed. That faith will ultimately falter. Paul says, put your faith in the power of God, not in a speaker's savvy or in his wisdom." And yet he qualifies this in verse 6. Paul is not against all wisdom. He says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Paul just wants us to know there are two types of wisdom. There is age wisdom and then there is ageless wisdom. Age wisdom are the pithy sayings you see on the billboards, the jingles you hear on the radio, the clever clips shown on TV, and gullible people get suckered in. It's bottom shelf stuff, you know? It's easily accessible, and the spiritually immature buy into it hook, line, and sinker. You know, some people live their whole lives based on jingles that they've heard in the media. You only go around once in life. You deserve a break today. Try it. You'll like it. No rules, just write. Age wisdom is the ad copy that gets replaced at the end of the day with something a little catchier. And every age, every era has its examples. Yet ageless wisdom is for the mature. It transcends the current situation and remains true for all eternity. See, Paul had grown tired of the world's pundits and talking heads. His time with the scholars and philosophers on Mars Hill had left him empty and disillusioned. In Corinth, he realized afresh how important it was for him to put his faith in God's ageless wisdom, a wisdom that never fades, but that stands the test of time. He writes in verse 7, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom Which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Understand, God's wisdom has never been conventional thought. Humans don't naturally think along God's wisdom. His thoughts are not our thoughts, His ways are not our ways. God's wisdom is a mystery to the mind of man. The Greek word mysterion refers to a sacred secret. God's truth is called a mystery. Not because it's cryptic or complicated or shady or hard to decipher. No, a mystery could be a truth that's crystal clear. It's it beyond us. It's a truth that we would have never perceived had it not been revealed to us by God. Look at the cross. Is that not a mystery? Could we have ever come up with the cross? Strength through weakness? Wisdom through what appeared to be foolishness. The cross was life through death. Victory through defeat. Look at the church. Are you kidding? Could we have dreamed up the church? The feeble become pillars. The suspect become saints. The rejected become accepted. The base or nobodies become somebodies in Christ. This is certainly not the wisdom of this current age. And just look at the courier. Paul himself. Declaration comes through trembling. Faith is produced despite one's phobias. In Paul at Corinth, God used a shaky spokesman to reveal his hidden and ageless wisdom. Realize all that we've been studying, God's use of the cross and the church and the courier, were all a mystery to the mind of man. These were truths hidden from us. It wasn't time yet. We weren't able to grasp them. And yet God ordained these truths from the beginning of time that Christ crucified would be for our glory. Oh, And what marvelous words are those three. For our glory. Elsewhere in the scripture, the cross is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. The church radiates God's manifold grace. Paul, the gospel courier, lived to the glory of God. But in another sense, all the above, the cross and the church and the courier are for our glory. God wanted to lift us, you and me from our sin and shame and clothed us in his grace and glory. And he did it in a way that confounded the world's wisdom. And that assaulted man's pride. It was God's genius on display. Which is why verse 8 concludes, None of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." The Romans and the Jews who executed God's only son, they were oblivious to God's wisdom. That ominous day proved forever that the wisest of men knows nothing about the wisdom of God. For when that crowd called out for the blood of Jesus, they couldn't have missed it any further. Imagine the rulers, the experts, killed God. What does that say about man's wisdom? These men were clueless of God's purposes. And this is why on the cross, Jesus could pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And yet, despite our dense darkness, God ordained the sacrifice of Jesus before the beginning for our glory. Isaiah prophesied, and now Paul quotes Isaiah in verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen Nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Often you hear that verse at funerals. It's applied to the wonders of heaven, eye has not seen. Oh, and it's true, heaven will be a place of breathtaking beauty. But in the context here, this verse has nothing to do with heaven. Paul is talking about the here and now. Your two eyes have not seen, your two ears have not heard. Your mind, your little mind, cannot even imagine the things that God has in this life for those who love Him. I think this is so incredible. A trembling, fearful, fumbling courier held up in the wicked city of Corinth, discouraged by ridicule that he had suffered, motivated only by the message he was compelled to deliver, he suddenly says to us, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love us. In other words, what we've experienced of God to this point pales in comparison to the blessing God still has for you and me. And so, embrace the cross and its message. Marvel at the church and its makeup. Study the courier and his methods. Rather than focus on many places quickly, I suggest we live in one place deeply. Christ crucified is the key that unlocks God's power and God's wisdom and God's blessings. Father, thank you.